This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 8th episode of season 10. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know Australia has approximately over 10,000 beaches located along its coastline? It's the country with the most beaches in the world and you could visit a different beach every single day for 27 years. Shout out to all my Aussie listeners by the way. Good day everyone. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Don't stress out about the world coming to an end today. It's already a new day in Australia. That was said by Charles M. Schultz, the American cartoonist. Our case this week was suggested by listener Claire Dixon via email. We're in the village of Oxenholme in Cumbria, northwest England. Not to be confused with Oxenhope, which I did call it a few times in my script. I had to go back and change that. Oxenholme, H-O-L-M-E. Here's your five quickfire facts about Oxenholme. Number one, Oxenholme is often dubbed as the gateway to the lakes, given its close proximity to the Lake District National Park. Number two, Oxenholme has its own train station, which has been nominated for the 2021 World Cup of Stations. Didn't know that was a thing. It plays a massive part in this story, by the way, so keep that in the back of your mind. Number three, on May 27, 2006, Oxenholme Station was the scene of a murder when a 19-year-old man was stabbed aboard a Glasgow paint and train. Number four, the Grey Rig derailment occurred on February 23, 2007, shortly after a Virgin train left Oxenholme Station. The crash left one person dead and 22 others injured. And number five, Romney's, a traditional British pub in Kendall, a town just north of Oxenholme, won the Best Restaurant of the Year award in 2014 in the Westmoreland Gazette's prestigious foodie competition. The approximate population of Oxenholme, according to the 2021 census, is 842. It's a really small village. I'm taking you almost 60 years into the past this week, so providing some context about the era and the UK as a whole makes sense. In February 1965, when our story takes place, the UK was experiencing its fair share of weather-related complaints. Now, we Brits are notorious for our grumblings about the ever-changing climate, with actor John Cleese humorously summing that up in an interview with David Letterman when he said, We have a national holiday. It's called Summer. Leading up to February 1965, there'd been more pressing concerns than just unpredictable weather patterns. The country was at the back end of an extended period of drought that began in December 1963. The prolonged dry spell marked the fourth consecutive winter with unusually low rainfall for much of the UK. But, as nature often does here, that quickly changed. Following that series of dry winters came four consecutive highly wet winters, a testament to Britain's reputation for flip-flopping weather conditions. 
If grappling with such bizarre weather fluctuations wasn't enough for Britons at that time, they were also collectively mourning the loss of one of their most revered figures, Sir Winston Churchill. At the beginning of 1965, the entire nation was overcome with grief over Churchill's passing on January 24th. His death marked the end of an era in our history, leaving behind a profound legacy that still resonates today. As one of the most prominent figures of the 20th century, Churchill's leadership played a pivotal role in shaping the course and outcome of World War II. The swinging 60s saw Beatlemania at its peak, with the Liverpudlian band's fifth album Help being released in August 1965. The Race Relations Act 1965 received royal assent on November 8th and came into force the following month. It was the first piece of legislation in the UK to address the prohibition of racial discrimination, banning such behaviour in public places and making the promotion of hatred on the grounds of colour, race or ethnic or national origins an offence. The person whose story we're focusing on this week was a 35-year-old man who was less than a week away from his 36th birthday when his life was tragically taken away from him as he bravely served his local community. Born on February 16, 1929, George William McKinley Russell was a police constable for Cumberland and Westmoreland Constabulary, which since 1967 has been known as Cumbria Constabulary. The young family man, whose collar number was 533, lived with his wife, Joan, and their two living children, 11-year-old Vanessa and 6-month-old Stuart, in a house on Springfield Road, a cul-de-sac in the Haraby area of Carlisle, Cumbria. Carlisle's Divisional HQ police station is where George was stationed. Originally from Arbroath, he'd spent previous years serving with the Scots Guard, one of the toughest fighting units in the British Army, and was stationed for a period in Peninsula Malaysia, which was known as Malaya at the time. George's respectable military career saw him stand as a beacon of integrity and warmth amongst his colleagues and neighbours. A pillar of the community, he was not merely a law enforcer whose personality was defined by his job. George was much liked by everyone who knew him and had a pleasant demeanour that enabled him to converse with whomever he bumped into despite his naturally quiet nature. It might sound contradictory for someone with military and police experience to enjoy the quieter things in life, but George was certainly an exception to that unwritten rule. He was an incredibly adept gardener whose green-fingered skills saw him regularly frequent flower shows. His fellow botanical lovers knew him well and his reputation at times preceded him, especially when it came to his expert knowledge of cactus plants. George's love for the outdoors didn't stop at gardening though. Living just 20 or so miles north of the Lake District meant he had access to some of the UK's most breathtaking views. Wild camping was one of his favourite things to do, as was swimming, and his experience with the Scots Guard will have undoubtedly aided his preparation for such activities. The persistent smile on George's face could not even be wiped off by a series of events that have been described by his neighbours as the worst look a person could experience. George and Joan went on holiday to his native Arbroath in August 1963 with Vanessa and another of their children, eight-year-old Stephen. The details of how and why it happened are unknown, but Stephen sadly lost his life on that trip. His cause of death was revealed to be drowning, and his passing absolutely devastated the whole family. 
It wasn't until Stuart was born around a year later that the couple began to feel happy again, but the loss of their child was something that would always leave a hole in their respective hearts. To make matters worse, George suddenly fell ill, and quite severely so, a few months after Stephen's death, with his stomach being the culprit. He spent weeks in hospital and also had to overcome a physical condition of some kind, according to his dad, George Sr., but I don't know exactly what the details of that are. That sort of concludes the background portion of this case, so let's get into the main timeline. On the chilly Tuesday evening of February 9th, officers at Cumberland and Westmoreland Constabulary were made aware of a stolen vehicle in the area just outside of Kendall. The vehicle in question was a red Morris 1100, one of the two most prolific variants of the AD-016 car built by the British Motoring Company. It was Britain's best-selling car from 1963 to 1966, so it may surprise you as to how quickly officers spotted it, seeing as though many people drove the same car at that time, albeit in different colours. The search commenced at around 8pm and not much time had passed before the officers gave chase to the vehicle which was speeding away through the town centre. After a brief chase through the streets of Kendall, the driver of the stolen car made a disastrous error. In an attempt to gain an advantage on the officers by sending them in the wrong direction, the thief reversed the car into a ditch, making it stuck. Exiting the vehicle and fleeing the scene on foot, the armed individual quickly reloaded his 22 caliber revolver, which was also stolen, and opened fire on the officers who gave chase. Backing off, given they were only armed with truncheons, the team in pursuit lost sight of their target, who disappeared into some thick foliage. The search for the car thief continued well into the night and almost ended at midnight when a lorry driver was suddenly ordered to stop after being pulled over. The driver had recently done what he thought was a good deed and picked up a hitchhiker, but he had no idea it was the person the officers were looking for. The driver jumped out of his skin when his passenger withdrew a revolver and aimed it at the officers on the side of the road. Threatening to shoot, the stranger let himself out of the lorry's passenger door and once more fled out of the officer's sights. As soon as he turned around to run away and stopped aiming the gun at them, they sped after him on foot, but there was too much distance between them and insufficient visibility in the surrounding wooded areas. The driver was, of course, questioned as to the chain of events, although not much information could be offered other than he saw a man in a sheepskin coat asking for a lift and felt he was playing the part of a good Samaritan by giving him one. As the early hours of February 10th ticked by, the uniformed officers were doing their utmost to track the elusive car thief who had by that point broken several laws. Eventually, Inspector Alfred Harrison came across a figure lying on a bench inside Oxenholm Railway Station. He spotted the man as he shone his torch through the window on the off chance he'd spot something, and my goodness did he. It's usually a busy station that serves as a mainline connection point for Kendall and Windermere. Given that Oxenholm calls itself the gateway to the Lake Districts, as I mentioned in the quickfire facts, that doesn't come as a surprise. On this occasion, though, the place was deserted, with the exception of the man lying on the bench inside the station's waiting room. He likely saw it as the perfect hiding spot because the last train out of Oxenholm Station would have left the previous evening at 9.30pm, with the first train of the day not due to leave until 7am. Perhaps he planned to escape the area by train once they were up and running. 
during those closed hours, there wouldn't have been any staff members on site to disturb him, as the only people working would have been stationed in a nearby all-night signal box. The room would also typically be locked, so we can assume that the man in question broke in. Either that or he got lucky and the door was mistakenly left unlocked. Regardless, Inspector Harrison recognised the man to be the car thief he and his colleagues had been searching for all evening. Along with George Russell and another PC called Alexander Archibald, they tasked themselves with attempting to arrest the suspect. George's experience and bravery shone through at this point as he was the one who made first contact with the gunman. Put that gun down lad and come out with your hands up, he said firmly. As he finished his demand, the gunman got up and approached the waiting room door. Remaining as quiet as possible, he opened the door slightly and poked the revolver out so that it faced George, who was standing mere inches away on the other side. At around 3.15am, the revolver's trigger was pulled, and a split second later, George slumped to the ground on platform 2 with a critical wound to his chest. The bullet had gone in through his chest, travelled through his aorta, and settled in his right kidney. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Inspector Harrison had spotted the gun a split second too late, and despite whacking it with his truncheon, he couldn't prevent George from being shot. Feeling a tad braver now that he'd downed an officer, the gunman exited the waiting room and fired more rounds at the remaining two. PC Archibald was lucky to survive, as he was shot in the chest and leg. Amazingly, this wasn't the first time he'd been confronted with an armed gunman locked in a confined space. Two years earlier, he'd been called to a scene where a gunman was locked inside their bedroom with a 12-gauge shotgun and threatened to shoot anyone who dared enter. Thankfully, that situation ended with no injuries as the gunman surrendered after an hour-long standoff. PC Archibald lived with his pregnant wife Ellen and their son David at Woodside Road in Kendall. His injuries were so severe that he had to be taken to Preston Royal Infirmary after first being dispatched to Westmoreland County Hospital as he required urgent surgery to remove the bullet lodged in his spine. Inspector Harrison was also shot by the gunman but got off the lightest of the three men pursuing him. The father of two was shot in the shoulder but made a swift and full recovery after receiving treatment at hospital. The shooter was once again on the run after fleeing up the railway line and into the woods. For some context, it's basically all farmland up there. If you look at a map, you'll see nothing but green. George was soon taken to the nearest hospital but died later that morning after succumbing to his injuries. In the immediate aftermath of his murder, George's colleagues and many other officers were involved in the manhunt to catch his killer. In excess of 200 officers, many of whom were armed with service weapons, were tasked with bringing in the gunman. Helping them were many police dog units and plans were in place to send a helicopter up in the hopes of finding the fugitive but as it turned out he would end up being caught before the chopper was needed. Roadblocks were set up with drivers being stopped and questioned as to whether they'd seen the man they were looking for. Described as being a 5 foot 9 dark haired man aged between 20 and 22 wearing a 3 quarter length brown sheepskin coat with a large collar it's fair to say the odds of not recalling seeing someone of that description were pretty slim. Still, the roadblock interviews led to nothing. It wasn't until 30-year-old farm worker Brian Clegg spotted someone running across the farm's land in the distance that police had any leads. 
He explained that the man was spotted again an hour later, much closer to the farm, at which point Brian and his aunt Sally yelled at him in vain to stop. With the police now informed, Brian soon saw what he described as a human fox hunt making its way across the fields. A boatload of officers were chasing a solitary man who was running as fast as he could to escape them. Brian recalled hearing 11 shots in the distance after that, but he'd already lost sight of the escapee and the officers. Enter PCs Geoffrey Harrington and Derek Thompson. At the time of the chase, we're talking around 11am or just after, they were in a farmyard close by when they spotted a couple of officers running past. PC Thompson said, We then saw a man running through Low Bleece Wood, and I saw a Lancashire County policeman fire at him with a 303 four or five times. He missed, and the man ran out of the north side of the wood and climbed over a wall. I took the gun off the Lancashire policeman and said, Give me a go. I fired one shot as he was running behind the wall, and I believe this shot grazed his temple. I then waited until he appeared in a gap in the wall. When I saw him, I fired again. This was probably the shot that hit his leg and brought him down. I've called it a 303 there for the caliber, point three oh three. I think that's how you say it, 303, right? Let me know if not. I should have just said rifle. Running up to the now-downed gunman, the two constables spotted that he still held the revolver in his right hand. Thinking quickly, PC Harrison dived at him and grabbed the gun, yanking it out of his weakening grip. With the suspect now in custody, he was searched. In his pockets were 30 rounds of ammunition. The following announcement was then made from Police HQ at Penrith at 11.55am. A man has been detained in the Oxenholm area. There were shots. The man is on his way to hospital. The injuries sustained by the gunman were pretty severe. He had indeed been shot in the leg by PC Thompson. The bullet hit him in the thigh, causing his femur to fracture. He also had a gun wound to his head, which sort of ties in with PC Thompson's testimony that he believed he may have grazed his temple, but it seems as if PC Thompson said that only after hearing briefly that the gunman had a head injury. The reason I say that is because, on closer inspection, the gunman had been shot between his right eye and right ear, and when the bullet was finally removed sometime later, it was identified as being a 22 calibre from his stolen gun. Basically, he'd shot himself in the temple in an attempt to take his own life, but somehow failed. I read a stat that says gunshot wounds to the head are fatal only about 90% of the time, which is crazy if true. You won't be shocked to learn that the bullet had caused some significant brain damage to the shooter, which left him all but unable to communicate by way of speech. But who was this now mute gunman who the police had spent so many hours chasing? His name is John Middleton, and at the time of his arrest he was in his early 20s, either 23 or 24 depending on which source you read. A labourer, John was reported as having no fixed address in February 1965, but he was married to a woman called Pamela, with whom he had three children, two sons and a daughter, who lived with their mum at Morley Road in Warrington, Cheshire. He had relatives in the Sedberg area of Cumbria, though, which lies around 11 miles east of Kendal, so it's likely he was staying with them during this story's events. Middleton was taken to the same hospital as PC Archibald, Westmoreland County, before being subsequently transferred, just like the PC, to Preston Royal Infirmary. Both men's injuries were severe and they were kept in for extended periods, but PC Archibald made a quicker and more permanent recovery. 
They remained in hospital whilst George's funeral took place five days after he was shot. A cortege of 20 cars followed the hearse carrying George's coffin whilst displaying over 200 wreaths, one from each of Britain's police forces. Thousands of people saw it go by as it made its way to Carlisle Cathedral. The funeral was attended by over 400 people and afterwards George's coffin was taken to Carlisle Cemetery to be privately buried. As a means of forever remembering George's bravery on that fateful day, the Dean of Carlisle, Reverend Lionel Dutois, offered Joan the chance to have a stone bust of her husband's head placed on an outside wall of the cathedral. Joan said, The Dean has been to see me and I am very proud that they are going to do this. It was an incredible honour, so Joan got together some photos of George and passed them on so that the stonemakers could study them for the carving of the bust. Speaking of Joan, an interesting fact about her is that she is believed to have been the first widow of a policeman to receive a gratuity payment under the Police Pensions Amendment No. 2 regulations of 1964. She went on to receive a gratuity payment of £2,210, which is just under grand as of July 2023, as well as weekly pension payments of £4, 14 shilling and 7 pence, around £225 as of July 2023. The first time Middleton appeared in court was on March 26th. He'd been unfit to do so until that point. Unable to speak, he did nothing more than simply nod his head when asked if he understood what was being said to him. His next court appearance didn't come until April 21st as he floated in and out of consciousness in hospital. He had to be wheeled into court on that day on a stretcher with pillows used to prop up his head. By the time his trial came around that June, Middleton's condition had failed to improve. Three doctors took to the stand to explain how the level of brain damage caused by the bullet wound in his head meant that it was not possible to give an indication of his mental state at the time of the murder. Dr William Stephen explained that Middleton didn't even recognise his own wife when she visited him in prison, indicating there were also memory loss issues to contend with. Dr Stephen also said he'd never heard Middleton speak, although he had been informed that the defendant had said the word yes on four separate occasions to other people. Middleton reportedly gazed vacantly around the courtroom as the doctors discussed his mental capacity. The trial ended on June 21st with a jury of 10 men and 2 women concluding that Middleton was unfit to plead, a decision they took just 39 minutes to reach. In sentencing Middleton, Mr Justice Brabin ordered him to be admitted to a secure hospital at the discretion of the Home Secretary. Pending that decision, Middleton was to be held in Walton Prison, Liverpool. My knowledge of his sentence ends there, but in all likelihood he will have been sent to a secure mental hospital. Fast forward 42 years from Middleton's sentencing and we arrive on June 21st, 2007. On that day, a plaque was unveiled at Oxenholm Railway Station in memory of George and his bravery on that fateful day. Eight years after that, on the 50th anniversary of George's murder, a memorial ceremony took place in the waiting room at Oxenholm Railway Station. George's surviving relatives, including his son Stuart and local dignitaries, placed wreaths at the site in his memory. Vicar Martin Dew and Reverend Richard Cook conducted the service. Stuart was interviewed by a Westmoreland Gazette reporter at the memorial and said, I never knew my father because I was six months old when he died, but you can't sit and dwell on it. Things could have turned out differently, probably, but I was brought up by my sister and my mother. 
Regarding the man who killed his father, Stuart said, He's just a man. You can't hold grudges. I think if my dad realised the reality of it, he wouldn't have gone in there. As I end this episode, I'd like to let you know that George Russell was posthumously awarded the Queen's Police Medal for Gallantry because of his heroic actions. And that was the story of the murder of PC George Russell. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. If you're listening on Spotify, there is a section at the bottom of the episode where you can let me know your thoughts. I've got seven new reviews to read out this week, so please bear with me. A Scottish listener left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I'm new to your podcasts. I listen via Spotify on my commute to and from work, as I do my weekly food shop and the housework, etc. I really enjoy your content and accent. Took me ages to figure out where you're from, and in all honesty, I never got it. You happened to mention it in one episode. However, I've just watched via YouTube, as I'm searching for the Peter Tobin episodes, and just seen your face for the first time. Honestly, not what I pictured at all. You've a wise, old, commanding voice, and then up pops a youthful, bright-eyed face. I was shooketh. Anyways, I'm enjoying catching up as you get me through the tedious tasks in life, so thank you. Jessica left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Loved your episode with Neil Woods. Such interesting insights into the police, drugs, drug use, drug users, and how to more effectively deal with drugs in society. Not what I was expecting from a podcast called British Murders, but it was like old-school radio listening where you stumble on a programme that you didn't know you were interested in. Thanks. Annie Quarmby left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I actually can't believe I found a podcast by someone from Huddersfield. It's lovely to hear our accents actually out there. Amazing setup and layout of the information, and very interesting. Could I request you talk about the murder of Robert Wilson on Manchester Road? I unfortunately knew one of the murderers, Kieran Earnshaw, from school, and I was not shocked one bit when I found out it was him. Keep up the great podcast, Up the Hoods. Livy left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Becky Watts' case. A lot missing, as Nathan was a prolific paedophile, and Shauna was actually a victim. Incidentally, you like to make your casts short, so as a listener, three over, provide more facts. The only reason I say this is some of your casts miss salient facts. Not knocking you, never done a podcast, only listened. I did mention Nathan was a ped at least twice in that episode, Livy, just to confirm. I also think my episodes are pretty detailed considering the length. My intention was always to allow the listeners to conduct more research should they wish, but sometimes there's just not that much info available. Livy then left another five-star review on BritishMurders.com. I'm assuming it's the same Livy. It reads... S, you're great. My colleagues and I enjoy the content. They're learning and enjoying. Not in a bad way. No serials here. Sam White recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, I really enjoy this podcast. I listen to so many true crime podcasts and sometimes they can be a bit long and hard to keep up with, but keeping it short and sweet with all the relevant information is great. And finally, Sharon C left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Love this podcast. Found it when I came back to work after maternity leave when I was looking for something to make my days better. The bite-sized nature is perfect. You display the utmost respect for the victims and I love the disdain evident in your tone when you're talking about an absolute bastard. I am Irish and I had to laugh several times during your interview with Donald McIntyre and the tangents he went on. Pure Irish storyteller. Keep it up and never mind the critics. What do they know? Speaking of critics, someone left me a reply recently on Spotify which said, He's awful! with an exclamation mark, meaning me, which was nice. 
It also said I constantly talk over my guests, which is absolute bollocks, and that my knowledge is sometimes lacking. Of course it is. I'm speaking to an expert in their field as a layman. My advice is to go and listen to another show, as mine clearly isn't for you. Thank you, Scottish listener Jessica, Annie, Livy, Sam and Sharon for leaving those reviews. If you want to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do that on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. I'm 20 ratings away from 800, so please keep those coming in if you've not done so already. If you want to support the show on Patreon or on Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you, hello and welcome to my latest Patreon member, Anna French. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. When I cover the episode, you will get a shout out for your troubles or you can remain anonymous. Just let me know. But that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.